Good evening. How's everyone doing? We are continuing in John's Gospel, Chapter 7 today. And what I'm going to do is kind of read through portions of it, and we'll stop and, and talk about this. So I want, as I'm reading these things, and hopefully you guys are reading ahead, and as questions come up to you or thoughts that maybe touch you, inspire you, um, hopefully you'll share them. And this is a time where we can kind of share those things together. And so we'll start in uh, John 7, and we'll read 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Now remember, Galilee is in the northern area of Israel. He did not want to go about in Judea, that's the lower region, because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. And that's a good reason to stay away from a place if they're trying to kill you. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowd were there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And so again, Jesus is in Galilee, the northern region. The Feast of Tabernacles is taking place, and we'll talk about that a little bit more fully as we go into, and that's taking place down in Judea, down in the southern region, and that's kind of setting the stage. Remember that this was one of the three major feasts, and this one was probably the most uh, celebrated. Uh, it would last for eight days, and so everyone who was within 15 miles, every male who was in 15 miles was required by their law to go down there. But even those who were past 15 miles oftentimes would make the journey because it was just a big deal. And reading this portion, are there any things that stand out to you? There, there's some big things in, in these verses. At least I thought so. Anything stand out to you guys in these verses? Okay, do you think his brothers knew they wanted to kill him? I'm not so sure, but we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But regardless of that, his brothers didn't believe in him. What, what was that about? And what was their wanting him to go down there about? What was taking place? The Jewish festival. And so why were his brothers telling him to go down there? What do you think was behind them? And their motivation. They're kind of telling him, prove it. 
Okay? You know, if you really are somebody special, prove it. Yeah, it's easy for you to do these things up here, but do something down there. Now, I guess if you have siblings, then you have a little bit more of understanding of what's taking place. Or if you have children, more than one, you kind of get an idea of the the rivalry that goes on. There's a, a commercial, I think it's a Subaru commercial about twin boys. Have you seen that commercial? I am just dying every time I see that commercial because they've captured twin boys in that commercial just so perfectly. I just, when I heard that, I just was busting up because there is this kind of competition that takes place with siblings where especially if there's one who's really well-behaved, you know, and they're always being, well, why can't you be like Jesus? You know, Jesus's room is always clean. You know, Jesus never has to be told twice. And pretty soon it's like, oh, man, I can't. Why do you always say that? I don't, you know, there's a competition that just rises up. At least that's how it was in, in our family. You know, we would have some kids who it's like, if I say yes to you, the house will be on fire, where the other child I could say yes to, and I know nothing would happen. you know. And so they'd say, why do you say yes to him? Because he won't burn the house down. And you might. Why do you say that? Because remember that time you almost did? Oh, well, you know, you're always comparing me. Well, I'm not trying to compare you, but there is rivalry that takes place with siblings. And so can you imagine... Growing up with Jesus as your brother, that would be tough. That would be really tough. And I, no doubt there was a little bit of friction. There's obviously some that's taking place here. Now, the amazing thing is we see that two of his brothers later on that we know of, James became a follower after the resurrection. He became the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And then also Jude was one of his brothers as well. And so there was a turnaround, but right now they're just saying, okay, you're you're saying all these things, you got people following you, but it's time now for you to, you know... I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> so it doesn't sound like me. <laughs> anyway, it, 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 so there's this competition that's taking place where now there's... Jesus, his brother, is saying, prove it. If you are really the son of God, now's your time to show it. Don't do it up here in the northern region. Go down into the city, into the main region, and prove yourself there. Jesus then goes on and he says, verse 6, my time is not yet come, or not yet here. Now, this is something that Jesus says over and over again, but the wording is different here. Is there something else that takes place in this passage? You guys just are not jumping on some of these things that I'm seeing here. I mean, anyone pick up on Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go, and then he goes? That strike anyone as weird? Like, hey, what, is he lying to them? Jesus can't lie. What's going on there? Did anyone think that besides me? Okay. Well, what's going on here is there is a difference in the wording here. The word for the time has not yet come. Every other time that John uses this, it's used with a, a time where there is something that is set to be hap to happen. But the word that is used here, it, it characterly 
characteristically means it's an opportunity. That is the best time to do something. So he says, for you, any time you can go down there. For me, this isn't the opportune time for me to go. He knows they're trying to kill him. They're looking out for him. And so instead of going with his brothers at the beginning, he waits for the opportune time when there's already a lot of people, when he won't be easily seen, when it'll be harder to kill him, basically. And so when he's saying my time has not yet come or not yet here, he's talking about this isn't the best time for me to go. Time for you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And so he's saying, I need to go at a specific time. It's not saying I'm not going to go, but it is a certain time. It it is a moment. Jesus isn't saying here that the destined hour of God has not yet come, but something more simple. He's saying that that wasn't the moment which he should actually go down there. He's waiting for the right time, unlike the other instances that we read in John's gospel, which explains why he does actually go down later. What does he mean when he says the world cannot hate you? What does he mean by the world? Taken in the context that we're reading. Is he talking about the earth? What does he mean by the world? Evil? Any other thoughts? Who's trying to kill him? The religious Pharisees, the the religious leaders. And so when he talks about the world cannot hate you, it's because they are no threat to the religious leaders in that time. They don't hate you because you're not ruffling their feathers. The world that he is speaking of is the world that he is engaged in at this time, the world that concerns the Jewish people concerns the Jewish leaders. He's not making a blanket statement, well, the evil that's in the world. At least I don't believe he is, and I know we hear that a lot. I believe he's talking specific to the situation at hand. Because any time will do, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Whose works were he testifying that were evil? It was the Pharisees. It was the religious leaders. They are misleading the people. They are keeping the people blind from the truth, me, that God is revealing to them. And so when he says the world can't hate you because you're not of concern to it, but they do hate me because I'm proving them wrong. And so when he's talking about the world, I don't think he's talking about a full global evil System. I think he's talking specifically about the evil that is taking place there, but I think it can be transferable where any time a system is trying to stop the truth from being heard, I think that would be an applicable situation. Anytime a, a world uh, a government or a, you know community or some kind of religious organization, anything that tries or opposes the truth of Christ or those who are carrying the truth, I think this would be an applicable connection. Okay, but I I think it's important because I've heard so many times the world, the world, the world, and it's supposedly everything that's outside of the church. 
And I just don't believe that that's what this is in reference to. I believe it's specifically those religious leaders who controlled their belief system at that time. And the world, them, hated Jesus because he was ruffling their feathers. He was rocking the boat. With you guys, it doesn't matter. You can go anytime. No one's trying to kill you. With me, it's different. Okay, I need to pick the right time because my time is not yet here. And when I go, it'll have to be at the right time. You go to the festival. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Again, it's not the exact time for me to go. After he had stayed, say, said this, he stayed in Galilee. He goes, it's not the time for me to go. You go, but it's not the time for me to go. And then later on, he went. And so that's why it seems kind of like He's lying, fooling them, but it really is how these words play out. Okay, Every other time in John's Gospel, it's a different word. I have the word written down in the Greek, but it means nothing to me. I don't think it will mean anything to you. Anyway, verse 10, he says, However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went out, not publicly, but in secret. Okay, he did this, again, trying to stay low profile because they're out to kill him. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus, asking, where is he? Now, they're watching him, asking, because they want to kill him. And among the crowd, there's all kinds of people looking for Jesus. Some are saying, ah, he's a good man. Others say, no, he deceives the people. You know, everyone's got their opinion of who Jesus is. That's the same today. People think all kinds of things about who Jesus is. I read a a Napoleon quote that I thought was neat. Napoleon said, I know men, and Jesus Christ is more than a man. And, And I thought that was very cool. You know, it's like, he's a man. No, he is more than a man. And then some say, no, he's deceiving the people. And you can see now this pull, this almost political religious pull that is drawing some people away from Jesus because the Pharisees have accused him of breaking their religious law. And so some people are siding with the religious leaders. And you will find that there are always going to be people who will side with those who are in control, those who are in power, those who have the loudest voice. And we talked about that a little bit Sunday, how there are so many who make their voice known, and oftentimes it's not actually the voice that God is projecting, but theirs is the loudest. And so we see the Pharisees say is having influence on the people that are around there, but some say, no, he's a good guy. They're all trying to figure these things out. Who is he? But they're all looking for him because, hey, the guy's done some miracles. Now, Do you remember the last miracle that Jesus did in Jerusalem? It was back in chapter 5. Remember the man who was by the pool and he healed him on the Sabbath? Okay, keep that in mind because that's going to come into play. They said, no, he deceives the people, but look at this in verse 13. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Isn't that amazing? No one wanted to say anything because they were afraid of what the religious leaders would say, or more importantly, would do. This is why they wanted to kill Jesus, because 
of the status that they held in the people's minds. People feared them. They had control. And if someone was going to come and take away their control, that is a threat to their power structure. When people get into positions of power, and it doesn't matter if it's politically, it doesn't matter if it's religiously, it doesn't matter if it's in a business situation. Power reveals what's really in power, in a person. It's like that saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I think more truly it's power corrupts, absolute power reveals, absolutely. It will reveal what's in you. Because I've had people who have been in power in a work situation who've treated me well. And I've had people in work situation who had power who were jerks, who usurped their authority, who, who reigned over people, who used people for their own benefit. I remember working in construction one time. It was out in Redlands, and there was this general contractor who was overseeing all the you know people that were out there, and I was working with a fire sprinkler company, and so he's overseeing the carpenters and the plumbers, electricians, all these things. And he would be out there, but then he would go to a bar that was right there in the center that we were working at, and he'd be in the bar most of the day, and then he'd come out and just start yelling at people. To get things done, you know, aren't you getting this done and getting this done? And then he'd go back in the bar and he'd be in the bar all day and then he'd come back in and he'd start yelling and he'd be intoxicated and yelling at all these people, you know, and everyone like hates this guy, but he's the one who makes sure we get our checks. So it's like, okay, he's in charge. And everyone was so happy when his boss came to the site one day and called him and said, hey, uh, yeah, where are you? Oh, I'm at the site. Really? Because I'm here at the site. I don't see you. And then he came running out of the bar all red-nosed, and he got fired, and everyone was happy. Um, but absolute power. They had this power over the people. Now, Rome was still over them, but they had this power, and they yielded it so that people were afraid to speak up. Isn't there something wrong when people are afraid of their religious leaders because of what they will do to them. If that's ever the case, if you guys are ever afraid of me and what I will do to you if I hear you speak, don't kill me, um, but you should leave <laughs> or talk to me or talk to somebody. You shouldn't have to endure that. That's just wrong. But I know that that's happened and happens in many places. Oh, don't, he's the pastor. Oh, they're the leader. Oh, he's the bishop. Oh, or an elder. Don't talk against them. You know, there's one thing to have respect, but it's another thing to be afraid. And something's wrong here. They're afraid. And verse 14, we'll, we'll read 14 to 24. Now, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. 
There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? So it would seem that the people weren't aware that the leaders were trying to kill Jesus. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, talking about John chapter 5 in Jerusalem, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on a Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, Jesus is in the temple courts. This is not inside the temple itself, though only the priests were allowed into the holiest place and, of course, the Holy of Holies. This was not even in the outer court or the Gentiles where they were supposed to come, where Jesus had overturned the tables and stuff. This was along the courtyard, the temple courts. There would be the Solomon's porch and different porches. And out on this colonnade or these patios would be covered areas where various rabbis would be teaching their disciples. They'd be talking and you'd hear what this rabbi has to say to his disciples. And over here would be another rabbi talking to his disciples. And so that's where Jesus is. He's now in the mix with all these other rabbis. And as he's talking there and beginning to teach, the Jews were amazed because he taught, but he hadn't learned from any of their teachers. How can he teach with this authority in such a way when he has not been taught? And what that means, it doesn't mean that he couldn't read. It doesn't mean that he didn't have any education. He was not under any rabbi. And so... How can he be someone who holds such authority when there is no rabbi that he comes from? You see, they would all say, well, what was your teacher? Oh, my teacher was Gamaliel. Oh, my teacher. And they would have these teachers, and that's how they knew, okay, so that's who his teacher is. He's teaching under their authority. But Jesus didn't have that because he was teaching under God's authority. And that's why even the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus would say, truly, I say to you. He he came with this authority within himself and the people recognized it. This guy has something. How can this be when there's no rabbi that he says that he is under? And so he's, again, blowing their minds because of not only what he's saying, but because no one has this kind of information or this knowledge unless they have a rabbi, and he doesn't seem to have one. How is this taking place? And so Jesus answers them, my teaching is not my own. See, because usually you'd say, well, who's your teaching? Oh, my teaching is that from this rabbi. Jesus is saying, my teaching is not just me. It's not my own. It comes from the one who sent me, which was God. And this is, uh, well, let me ask you guys a question. I'm jumping ahead because you didn't jump in last time. Any questions in this last or this portion from 14 to 24 that stood out to you? They're just thinking he's out of his mind because who's trying to kill you? 
they didn't know anyone's trying to commit. It's like, you're nuts. You must be, you must be crazy. And so they would attribute just kind of your psychotic, demon-possessed means some, you're not right in the head or something is controlling you because that doesn't make sense to us. And it was kind of the crowd interjecting. But right now in this situation, this scenario, Jesus is in the outer court. He's talking. Now the religious leaders are there because they found out, oh, Jesus is here. So they come there and now Jesus is in the midst of all these people. And so he's talking with the religious leaders, but the crowd is there as well. And so you see a little you know, heckling going on. Who's trying to kill you? You're possessed. You know. Thank you, thank you. You know, quiet back there. there. That's kind of an interaction that's taking place in there. What about verse 17? Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. That is a very curious verse. At least it is to me. First of all, anyone. Who does he mean when he says anyone? Okay, good. In the Greek, anyone means anyone, okay? He's not being exclusive. Again, here is Jesus saying, anyone who chooses, I love that word, to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So anyone, could that include a person who is not a Christian? Right? Anyone is anyone. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if someone puts into practice the things that are from God, it will lead them to me. And this reminds me of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, verse 2, it says of Cornelius, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Remember, Cornelius was a Roman centurion, but he believed in God and he gave to those in need. And guess what? God showed up to Cornelius. The angel said, hey, go get Peter. Simon, who's called Peter, staying at Simon, who's called Simon's house, right? In Acts chapter 10. In verse 4 of chapter 10, the angel says to Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. The things that you did have opened the way so that now this conversation can be taking place. You see, there are people who do things that are in line with the will of God, and what that does is help reveal God more clearly to them. And if a person will actually do the works of God, it will eventually lead them to the person of Jesus, because Jesus is the representation of who God is to human flesh. And that's why we could see so many instances where these people who were outside came and have knowledge of God. Paul talks about this in Romans. How do those who are outside the law do the things that are in the law except that they have a law within themselves, meaning God is working in their midst as well. And so doing something 
causes something to happen to us. At the same time, those who know all about God, but who don't do the will of God, the odds are they aren't going to be getting any closer to the truth and God is not going to reveal himself to them. And that's what we have happening with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees knew about the scripture, but here was the living word and they couldn't see him. Why? Because they weren't doing the will of God. They just had the information. What if you're getting an operation? Okay, I need some brain surgery. You're saying, I knew it. And I have the choice. There's this doctor. He, he's, he's the most knowledgeable on brain surgery. He has read everything there is to know about brain surgery. He knows everything. But he has never touched a scalpel. And he's never operated on anybody. And there's this guy who has done thousands of operations and they've all been successful. Who do you want operating on you? Right? The one who's done this, been there, and made it through. You see, I don't care how much you know. I want to know if what you know is actually something you are doing. It's something you've put into practice. You can read a book on car you know, automotive mechanics. I used to always get those books because I used to always have to work on my car. And I, if it didn't have pictures, I was lost. And they'd say, okay, take the caliper and do that. And I'm like, oh, give me a picture. Okay, that's that. And I'd eventually have to just get in there and start working with it because for me, reading it and those books, they, they talk so technical. And I have a heart, I just don't, digest things that way and I'd sit there and I'd read it and I go I have no idea what that means but there's a picture that looks like what I'm working on I'll go down there and I'll start messing around and trying to get it done that's why I have other people work on my cars now but you need someone who actually knows what's going on who actually does it and when they start doing it they actually come to the place that they will see who God is actually, and what Jesus is. The one who does the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And that's why there were people who weren't educated, who heard Jesus's words that rung true, is because they were living lives, choosing to live lives that were lining up with who God is. And then God became clearer and clearer to them as they saw who Jesus was. They could see it, but the ones who knew the scripture, who knew the law, couldn't. I find the same thing true today. There are people who know the scripture, but when you talk to them, their character does not represent Jesus. And they come off very judgmental, very combative, very hateful. And you're thinking, you don't look like the God I know. Why? Because they're not choosing to do the will of God, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God and to love others. And so all of a sudden their, their vision gets cloudy, or it can. Verse 18, whoever speaks of their own does so to gain professional, personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is the man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So motive is so important. 
And Jesus is saying, okay, if I'm here just for myself, it's no good. But you see, Jesus is the one who chose the cross rather than to be empowered by the people. Jesus is the one who chose to wash his disciples' feet rather than to be served. Jesus is the one who had this uncommon sense about what power was. And actually, even though he had all power, he chose his power to serve all. And so he's saying, if I was doing this just for myself, then you could tell something's wrong. But that's not the case. If a person is there for their own glory, something is wrong. And so that's kind of the litmus test. Is this person in it for themselves? Are they getting status, prestige, wealthy? Are they using people for their own advantage in the name of God? Well, then don't trust them. Because even if their words have this truth to them, they're using those things for themselves. And we know that. Our history is littered with examples of people who have used people in the name of Jesus. And so they've become wealthy, they've become empowered in the name of Jesus, and then people look and they start thinking or associating Jesus with these people and the things that they did. And Jesus saying, if they do that, don't trust them. They're not, there's nothing you can trust or value in them. But if the man of truth comes, there's nothing false about him. He's giving of himself to help others. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Which, you know, he's talking again to the Pharisees. He's saying, you, you say that Moses gave you the law, but you're breaking the law. And when they yell out, who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. Again, that was that in John chapter 5, healing the man by the pool on the Sabbath. And so, and you were all amazed. And yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is using their standard against them. You healed on the Sabbath. Well, if a boy is born, you are required by your law on the eighth day to circumcise him. And so, you know, that will sometimes land on the Sabbath because you can't tell moms, hold on one more day because we can't circumcise on the Sabbath. No, she's going to have the baby when she has the baby. And so they have the baby, eight days later, it's the Sabbath, we need to circumcise the child. Why? Because that's what the law says. And so you have no problem putting that into practice, but you had a problem with me healing on the Sabbath. So you're able to do work on the Sabbath according to your law, and actually the the cutting and, and the injuring, in a sense, of a person and I am not able to bring healing to a person. And so he's using the law, and it's brilliant, because what do you say to that? Well, yeah, that's true. But, but we don't recognize that. And so, again, imagine if you're in the crowd. Here are the religious people, the ones who have been taught by the rabbi so-and-so, the rabbi so-and-so, who have all the credentials, they have the gowns, they have the tassels, they have the beards, you know, whatever they have, they, they look official. And then here's Jesus. 
And he doesn't have all that prestige, but he's talking to them and his arguments are just shutting them up. They are just left speechless. And he says, you, you say that I did something wrong, but you do this all the time on the Sabbath. Why is what you do okay, but what I did, even though it was bringing wholeness to a person, why is that wrong? Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Again, everyone else was afraid of these guys. And Jesus tells them, stop judging by appearances. Start judging correctly. Ooh. Okay, he, he's calling them down. I mean, this is like, you'd be in the crowd and you'd be, oh, did he just say that? Oh my gosh. You, you ever been in that situation where someone says something, you know, maybe to a teacher or whatever, and it's a person of authority, not saying you should talk, you know, bad about your teachers or anything, but all of a sudden they just say something and they're like, oh, did he just say that? And he did. So verse 25 at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? All of a sudden, like, maybe they are trying to kill him. Is this the guy they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But he know, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Now, it was their belief that the Messiah would just show up. They believed that he would be born in David's lineage because <clears throat> the scripture said so. <clears throat> and they believed he'd be born in Bethlehem, again, because of the scriptures and because of David. But they thought he would just come up on the scene, kind of be out of nowhere. But they know Jesus's family. They know that he's from Galilee. They, they know too much about him to make it comfortable for them. And remember, we started off with his, even his brothers didn't believe in him. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is a specific hour. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? In other words, they're, they're, well, we know this about him. I thought we weren't supposed to know that. But man, he's healing people. Will the Messiah do more than him? I heard he fed 5,000 people. I know, I heard that too. I heard he turned water into, I know. Will the Messiah do more than this? Uh, man, I, I don't think so. They were in a quandary. What do we do? We, we know about him, but man, what he's doing. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees don't usually see eye to eye, but they were on board with this. We got to stop this guy. People are thinking too much of him. We need to stop him. Verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Gentiles and teach the Greeks? 
What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So, Jesus, again, talks in this way that's a little cryptic, and they're trying to figure out where is he going, what's he talking about? And, of course, we have hindsight, and so we have a clue on what he's talking about. He's talking about when he would be resurrected and be with the Father in heaven, but in their minds, it was he's going to go scattered among the Greeks. All along outside the Jerusalem area, there were Jews who lived among the Greeks, and they were called the dispersion, the dispersed. And so this is where they thought he was going to be going, to these people who were dispersed. And in some ways, he did, but he did through the Spirit and through Paul and through others. He did actually go to these Greeks through these other people. But that wasn't what he was specifically talking about here. He was specifically talking about, I'm going to go back to my father in heaven, the one who sent me. You're not going to go with me. It doesn't mean that they're not going to heaven. He's just saying, I'm going to be going there. You guys are still here. Does that make sense to you guys? Because a lot of times we want to make bigger things, I think, out of what Jesus is trying to say here. He meant physically. You can't come because I'm going to be sending to my father. On the last, verse 37, and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. It's an important verse there to remember and highlight. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say, that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. The last and the greatest day of the festival. Again, the Feast of Tabernacles. What this feast was, was a commemoration of their time in the wilderness, the Jewish history in the wilderness, how God provided for them for 40 years. And so what they would do in this festival is for eight days, they would go and they would build these booths. They would be made out of, of stick and palm branches. They, they couldn't be anything that was lasting. They were made to be temporary. And it was made so that you would be able to see the stars up above. The roof had to be somewhat transparent so that they could still see through it to the sky above. They would have torches or lamps or menorahs outside. And so imagine just these thousands and thousands of people making these little lean-tos up and all over the place you have these lights. And the light was a figure of how God in the night would provide for them by the pillar of light and the shade, the covering that they had was their God covering them. And the whole point of this was for them every year to go and teach their children 
you know, hey, look up. This is representing what happened to our people when we wandered in the wilderness for some 40 years and, and God provided for us. He provided a light for us to travel in at night and he provided uh, shade for us during the day so we weren't out in the desert and, and would die. He provided food for us. He provided water from the rock to to take care of us. In fact, on the last day of the ceremony, they would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would fill this pitcher with water and would be carried back through the water gate while the people would recite Isaiah chapter 12, 3, which says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The water was carried up to the temple altar. It was poured out on the offering And all this was being done through some of the psalms that they would sing, the Hallel songs that were songs of ascent up into the temple. They would give thanks to the Lord. And again, this was a big celebration. This is the the culmination of this incredible feast that they're having. They'd give thanks, oh, work now, then salvation. And finally, the closing words would be, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And the worship would shout, and they'd wave their palm branches towards the altar, and the whole dramatic ceremony was a vivid thanksgiving of how good God was providing for them the water, all the things that were necessary. And so imagine that's all happening as the water is being carried up by all these priests and poured out as this water offering, and then Jesus stands up and he says these words when he tells them, On that great day, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. So here Jesus in this great celebration stands up and says, all this water that's being poured out, all this thing that you're rejoicing at, if you're really thirsty, come to me. And so now we see Jesus' words, I need to make the most of this time. My time or the opportune time isn't yet for me. He was waiting for the opportune time. And this, the culmination, the last day, was the opportune time. And he's saying these things because he's bringing clear who he is in a way that they would start to understand. Whoever's thirsty, come to me even though we look at it and we say, oh, this is very poetic, to them it had a lot of meaning. The water being poured out as an offering. If you're thirsty, come to me. I will give you living water. And so here they are. And by this he meant the Spirit, verse 39, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, The Spirit had not yet been given. What does that mean? Didn't the prophets have the Holy Spirit? What what did Jesus say? Did someone whisper something? For their eyes to be open? Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he says, I must leave so that when I go, the Comforter, The Holy Spirit can come and he will give you power and understanding. Unless I go, he cannot come. And so he's talking about the new covenant, the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where now our bodies would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God could come upon people, but could not dwell in people. Now, why couldn't he dwell within people? But why in the Old Testament couldn't the Spirit like go and just dwell within, say, Abraham or David? Why was it that the Spirit would fall upon them, but couldn't stay within them? That's what he's saying, right? Jesus wasn't... Now, why is that important? Has to do with sanctification or justification. You see, they would have to offer sacrifices for their sin. But the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse them from the sin that is inerrant in all of us. But the blood of Christ could. And so our lives weren't purchased, weren't redeemed fully. There was an understanding of God, but there had to be a penalty for sin, and that didn't take place until Jesus died. And the resurrection was the acceptance. The just God says, my stamp of approval is on this. And so why it had to happen was because Jesus had to die for our sin, make the sacrifice so that we could now be accepted by God, become the righteousness of God through him. And his resurrection just gave God's stamp of approval on that. And so the spirit could not come and dwell within us. The new covenant, I will no longer you know, write my law on a stone, but I will write them on the tablets of your heart. The spirit now can indwell you and be within you, bringing out this life consistently, continually. It wouldn't happen until the sacrifice and the resurrection. Okay, that's why it needed to take place. And that's why this verse is an important verse because it's showing us that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, that what he did was bring in this new covenant and that his death, resurrection was God's approval. Now the spirit could come and be upon us. In in chapter 20, we're gonna read after the resurrection that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. And at that point, his disciples were indwelt with the Spirit, would be called what we call born again, born anew. The Spirit now dwelt in them. And then through the book of Acts, the Spirit would come and empower them, but he was always in them. Okay? That's the whole new covenant. That's why Jesus came. The Spirit of God now is able to connect us to God because of what Jesus has done in a way more fully in a way more completely, not because we're better, but because we have been made right before God because of what Jesus has done. Does that make sense? Okay, good. It's a lot to grasp. Anyway, still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah you know, David's descendants. And so some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Finally, let's finish it up here. Finally, the temple guards, verse 45, went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? They were supposed to go and get him, right? And they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. I love that. They went there and they just were mesmerized. They heard Jesus speaking 
and they like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Every now and then I read or hear a story about, you know, some officials, soldiers, someone who has been entrusted to do a job and they go to a situation and they find something that's being done that is so humanitarian in value that they can't continue. It's like I couldn't stop what they were doing because I was so struck by how good it was that I just had to leave it alone. How can I go and arrest these people when they're not doing anything wrong? And so these guards go there. Okay, yeah, let's go take Jesus. And they hear them and the things he's saying. And when he stands up, I am, you know, whoever is thirsty, come to me. And he talks about these things. And they're just listening to him and like, oh my gosh. And whoever does the will of God, then God will reveal to that person who Jesus is? What if these guards were really trying to do the right thing? What if they were really trying to serve God in that temple, even though those who were over them were blinded by their power and they were doing things of noble value and they heard Jesus's words, them doing the words of God, Jesus's words all of a sudden ring true in their hearts and they say, oh my gosh, that's the truth. No one ever spoke like this. And see, I think it's so important to recognize how God speaks to people because oftentimes we base our judgment on the appearance where, oh, that person, you know, they're an atheist. And so automatically our mind thinks, oh, they're far from God. But then you find out, well, this atheist is doing some really very good things. They're, you know, being very uh, generous to the poor. They're trying to help those in need. They're, they're doing things that look a lot like the things God would be doing. And you see someone like that. And you see, I think when the truth comes out, it's going to ring true in their hearts. And even though they label themselves an atheist or a homosexual or whatever it might be, God's voice is still able to ring true and will lead them to the Son. Will lead them to a place where they say, wow, something is right about that. And so these guards come in there and they just say, wow, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Verse 47, you mean he deceived you also? Here's the leaders, of course, holding on to their power. The Pharisees retorted, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? I like their argument. We don't believe in him, so why should you? Why? Because we're the authority. You have to go through us to find out who God is. Danger, danger, Will Robinson, danger. Verse 49, no, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Once again, we see the hierarchy. We know they don't. We have the truth, you don't. And you think about that even through church history, how that's been used to keep people in line, 
how that's used. To, well, you don't know the scriptures like we know the scriptures. I know the Greek. I know this. I know this. You might know all the information, but God reveals himself to magi. God reveals himself to the temple guards. God reveals himself to shepherd boys. God reveals himself to those who choose to do the things that are in line with who God is. Nicodemus from chapter 3, who had gone to see Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Tries to bring a little, hey guys, just saying, you know, we aren't really supposed to do this. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Again, popular Jewish belief was the Messiah would just come out on the scene, but definitely wouldn't be from Galilee. And so they had one thing that they could hold on to. And it was based on misinformation. Sometimes I, I encounter people who are, are followers of Christ and they hold on to one piece of information. They've got one scripture. And man, this scripture is what I hold on to. And sometimes I think, yeah, but you're holding on to that scripture in the wrong way. You're, you're, you're taking it out of context. And now you're holding on to something and, and it blinds you from seeing anything else because all you want to do, no, this must be right. What if your view of that is wrong and you're not able to see anything else because you're holding on to something the wrong way? See, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were holding on to this one thing. No, it can't come from Galilee. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They just didn't know it. They didn't have all the information. They didn't have the clarity. And so they made all, they put all their eggs in this one basket. No, because scripture says, because scripture says, because scripture says, that's all right, that's all right, that's all right. Well, what if you didn't have that right and everything else was wrong? Scary. And so when we become very dogmatic, we need to be careful that we can hear what God is saying, that we can get a a clear picture, a clear narrative of who God is and these things that we're holding on to. And that's why even as I was talking Sunday just about Reformed theology, uh, you know, they'll hold on to certain scriptures in Romans and they'll bank everything on one of those passages You know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. See, God can hate people. God can choose these people. And you take that, and if you just hold on to that, say, I can't believe anything else because I'm holding on to this. What if you're holding on to that wrong? What if Jesus is, or Paul's using hyperbole like Jesus did. I tell you to hate your father and mother. If you love me, you will hate them. Really? Is that what he's telling us to do? Or is he trying to bring an illustration? What if Paul was just trying to bring an illustration and you're holding on to that illustration the wrong way? Maybe you're going to be blind to everything else that God is actually doing because you're holding on to the one thing. And the Pharisees here are holding on Galilee. He can't be from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. It's like, Pomona or something, you know, you just can't, nothing good comes from there. Sorry, all my friends in Pomona. But that's all they could hold on to. And by holding on to that, they failed to see everything else. 
And we need to be careful that we don't hold on to one thing so dogmatically that we're not able to discern what else is happening around us. And so we should always be engaged and asking questions and allowing these things to enter our thoughts to be able to ask and seek. Any questions on this chapter? Yeah, again, there's a whole lot in the birth that was, you know, they saw Joseph as his father, you know, or some people, you know, saw Mary as having Christ illegitimately, um, you know, which played into how they saw him. Any other thoughts or comments on this chapter? Guys, come on, guys. You got to come up with some scriptures. There's some some questions here. I mean, I'm not going to create problems for myself. You know, it's like, well, I, let me tell you what I don't understand. I don't understand about this. Like, but so let's read chapter eight next week. I don't know if we'll get through the whole chapter or not. Um, we'll try. We'll see. And then I want you guys to write down any questions you have. Any thoughts you have that stand out to you as you read that passage, let things jump out to you. You know, when you hear these things, and and we can talk about those things. Okay? Let's pray, and then you can eat some candy and drink some coffee. Father, once again, I always marvel at how you work and how you reveal yourself and the way you do things is so unlike how I'm used to seeing people do things. And yet it's so beautiful and it's so wise and and so, in a sense, disarming how it takes the arguments that we have against you and it reduces them to so little. Lord, you didn't come to make yourself known, to to boast about your abilities to take and control and to reign. You came to serve and to bring glory to God through how you did things. And by doing that, we got to see God a little bit clearer. In fact, when we do the things that are in God's will, we actually see you in that picture. And so I pray that we would continue to learn more and more about you. We would do your will and that, Jesus, you would become even clearer to us. I do thank you for this time, Lord. Bless all those here and those who aren't able to make it, Lord. Thank you for our opportunity to gather. In Jesus' name, amen.